This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to a bonus episode of Not Your Century. One of the stories in today's main episode is about a scandal at the Washington Post in 1981. 26-year-old reporter Janet Cook won the Pulitzer Prize for her story, Jimmy's World, about an eight-year-old heroin addict. He was a victim of D.C.'s drug epidemic, but Cook's glory was short-lived. Questions arose about her resume. For one thing, she claimed to be a graduate of Vassar, which she'd never attended. And after a day-long investigation by the Post, she'd confessed. She made up Jimmy, and she fabricated quotes and events in the story. The Washington Post returned the Pulitzer Prize, and Janet Cook resigned and disappeared from the public eye other than one TV interview with Phil Donahue in 1982. Mike Sager was also a young Post reporter at the time. He and Cook dated off and on when they were at the paper together, and they've remained friends. Sager's a veteran author and magazine writer, and he's been Janet Cook's voice in the intervening years. He wrote a short ebook called Janet's World about the Pulitzer episode, and he's written that he gets a lot of interview requests for Cook, which he dutifully passes along and which she always turns down. I've talked to Mike Sager before about other stories. I have his phone number and I have his email, so I'd have been remiss if I didn't ask for a Janet Cook interview, but I knew there wasn't much chance of that. My real question was, would he talk to me about Janet Cook? And the answer was yes. Mike Sager joined me by phone from Southern California, where he lives. We began by talking about a piece he wrote in 2016 about the episode for the Columbia Journalism Review. headline, and I think this was a fair, maybe you wrote the headline, but it's The Fabulist Who Changed Journalism. Uh, what, in what way did she change journalism? Well, two things mainly. First of all, something don't, people don't talk about was the whole idea of uh, having a checkable resume. Because mm. when you read the, the long story, you find out that re- uh, Janet was really busted by her resume. She did. She said she went to Vassar and graduated, and she didn't. And that's what tipped off everyone. So the first thing she changed that was big was resumes get checked now. Hmm. You can't just write anything on your resume. Plus, you have to realize that was prior to the time when you can Google something. Right. You know, the other way she changed journalism was it was the beginning of kind of the period that's ended now. And so uh, let me jump backwards a little, though. Okay. Uh, World War II, post-World War II, you have Walter Cronkite. Um, you have uh, coming into the living rooms and America trusting what he says. Then you have um, the the TV news and all that stuff opening up the Vietnam War. Then after that, you get Woodward and Bernstein, who actually helped like uncover wrongdoing within the, uh, an unpopular presidential administration and helped his ensuing his ensuing impeachment go down impeachment so so there at that point like night like late uh, mid 70s journalism is like um the fourth estate 
uh, it, it, it's a, a bastion of truth and honesty and objectivity, supposedly, all this stuff. You know, then um, there's a an explosion of news, and the news um, comes in in several ways. On the one one hand, there's the investigative side, but on the other hand, there's all the TV and the media and the media expansion of media and the expansion of the internet. You know, all lent itself to instantaneous news, which is more about like people having an opinions and talking and taking the first 140 characters of the news event mm-hmm. than it was about the conservative grumbling over the news that could be published like once a day. <laughs> right. So, you know, Janet was Janet was not responsible for the death of journalism uh, as we know it as we knew it prior to Janet and prior uh, but she was sort of one of the rumblings of the beginnings of the change in in and learning that journalism was indeed fallible as much as the other estates could be so you worked with her at the post and um again the, it, it's it's sometimes with uh for the rest of us, she's a historical figure. And I feel like sometimes with historical figures, they are figures. And we talk about them as, you know, the fabulous who changed journalism. She was a harbinger of, of you know, rumbling of, of changes. She was just a person who walked into the newsroom and, you know, had come from Toledo. Well, I uh, think that's the mo- most important part of the story that sort of gets lost and then kind of has reemerged in relevance today. Because um, at one time, you know, this story was looked upon as a story of a, a young woman who perpetrated a crime on journalism. Mm-hmm. And and I think now um, we're starting to see the idea that um, the difficulty of, you know, people of color integrating themselves in society and just like her father before her who was so strict and caused her to you know, have certain behaviors really in coping with with society, you know, the whole notion of affirmative action and leveling the playing field and, you know, going way back to the beginning of that. It's like a, a very tortured history of people trying to do the right thing. And yet, you know, the, the, the right thing is difficult to come by. And, you know, some of the um, some of this story has become given over to the difficulties of a black woman finding her agency within a white-dominated male news environment. Yeah. And um, so, you know, that's sort of the story is about both things. Um, you know, but I, I prefer to think the story is least to do with the, journal, the her wanting to hurt journalism and the most to do with her trying to you know, make something of herself because of her upbringing and the pressures on her. And it's sort of like, you know, people are more driven. Like, she wasn't trying to mess with the Washington Post and ruin the whole Washington Post, and she wasn't trying to win a Pulitzer. She was working in the weekly section of the Washington Post, which was where all of the two-year interns and the misfits worked, and she felt like it was the back of the bus, and she got a hold of this story about heroin Mm-hmm. You know, that was going to be a blockbuster, and they gave her time off the, the back of the bus to go work on this story, and then it kind of didn't work out. And then it was like a classic movie where, 
you know, that person just made, I'm just going to make this up, right. you know? And it's sort of, it's that classic movie that if it's, hopefully if it's your life, that it never happens. But if it, in a movie, it becomes, it's, it makes for great drama, um, you know, and, and unfortunately that was someone's life. And if she doesn't win the Pulitzer Prize, maybe uh, she was she still working for the Washington Post today? This wouldn't have come to light, or would it? Um, I think it would have just gone by. Yeah, I mean, you know, the uh, for people on on uh, familiar with the story, which I hope you could be. Uh, we have a we have a very inexpensive ebook uh, that you could find on our SagerGroup.net website uh, with a, a thirty thousand word account of of Janet and the whole story, um, but um, now I've, I, I've been selling something, so I forgot what I was trying to say. <laughs> Whether it would have <laughs> happened, uh, you said it would have passed I did that by. So well, uh, <laughs> well, I think the thing that caused so much problem was after her, she won the award. You know, um, prior to her winning the award, um, people there was an outcry over the actual victim of her story, Jimmy, mm-hmm. the eight-year-old heroin addict, and um, what to do about him. And should, and then the Post had to go into this mode where they were protecting their sources and all that. So, But then it survived that, mm. and everything died down, and then it went on to win. And then the problems with the name, with, with the uh, college you know, CV came up. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it might have died down. This was a great story by the perfect candidate at a perfect time. It was, you know, the perfect storms of stories. And, you know, that's, I say it in the story too, that back at the time, and and I was a little junior to her as a reporter, sort of younger, um, but I said to some of my older colleagues at one point, you know, I'm not sure whether my instinct is that the story is incorrect or my instinct is just jealousy because I know this thing's going to win the Pulitzer Prize because it's just the perfect story. But And you don't, you know, it, it was the kind of thing where you couldn't, I couldn't say anything to her. I just, I felt like it wasn't appropriate for me to say, so is this made up or what? Mm. I mean... At one point, and it says in the story here, too, that, you know, I heard her speaking on the phone to someone, and they mentioned this child, and, but then I think what happened is, she went to the editor and told him about the kid before she actually had the kid, and, you know, that's something a veteran reporter doesn't do. You don't want your your editor up your butt until you know you can produce, like, what's supposed to come out of there, so... (laughs) You uh, mentioned that you dated her, and I think you wrote in the book that you stopped dating her because of all the lying. She, that lying was a way of life for her, and you mentioned a minute ago her father. And uh, do, can you give us a little insight into that? What what kind of person was she, and why would you say that lying was a way of life for her? Um, her dad was an extraordinary man who had begun work, his working career as a janitor of some sort at the Toledo Power Company. And somewhere along the line, again, the details escape me, but they're all in the book. Somewhere along the line, the president of the power company sort of discovered him and raised him up and 
and he got sent to college and sent to law school, and he eventually became, um, you know, in the, I guess, let's see, in the in the early in the fifties, the mid fifties, he became, you know, the black head of the Toledo Power Company. Mm. You know, he was among like that wave of first black men who, um, you know, sort of were helped to buy into the great American dream and become what they called in history, you know, be a credit to your race, which kind of meant, you know, become an American version of a black person, yeah. um, you know, and, and assume our values and we shall give you what we have kind of thing. And so he was from that era. And bottom line was the family lived in the ghetto, but the girls were not allowed to play with any of the kids. Mm. And, and in the ghetto, and they went went to school at Mommy Valley Country Day School in uh, rural Ohio, you know, outside of Toledo there. And, um, you know, so they lived this weird separate life. And then he was very strict and sort of uh, a, penny, a penny pincher. So the girls and the mom had to learn coping skills in order to live around him. Like mom had a a mailbox drop for their credit card bills for oh, the wow. one they use for shopping, or they would only be able to bring clothes in that they bought, you know, at certain hours of the day. And there was, you know, this strictness and this, like, meanness. And, you know, and you see it a lot in, like, as a theme, you have to be better than everyone else. I mean, it's it's a burden that anyone of any racial minority, Jews, black people, any Irish Italians, you know, all during that day, everyone has had this problem of being identified as someone who has to work harder to make up the distance. Yeah. And so that was what he was about. And then at the same time, you know, she was supposed to be like this blonde girl at Mommy Country Valley Day School. And she was a beautiful woman, but she just wasn't a blonde girl. Mm. But she had a lot of body image problems. And so... Uh, at the same time, she was brilliant. You know, she was a brilliant person, um, a great writer, and um, had amazing talent. You know, but she was also had a lot of personal issues. And nobody addressed stuff like that back then to yeah. that degree. And I, you know, one of my favorite things that I try to explain is that being with her, we could sit on a park bench anywhere and it was like being in a Nora Ephron movie mm. you know the dialogue was just amazing you know it was sizzling and crackling and she had this you know great laugh and you know she just got she got the joke you know it was just I think her go-to place unfortunately growing up was to lie and um, you just can't do that in news Last question. You're you're you seem to be still in touch with her, um, and I know that she wants privacy. And she, you said that she turns down uh, all interview requests, which tend to come through you, and you dutifully pass them along. What kind of a sense can you give her about what give us about what her life is like now? Um, I try not to really know. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't have any answer. I mean, I think the most important thing to realize is, like, everybody wants to interview her, and even people who are sympathetic, and, like, it's something she'd just rather not 
think about. Yeah. I mean, she it's like she gets it. She like fucked up like so bad that it changed her whole life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she, she had a lot of talent in a lot of places she could have gone. She's made the best of her life and done a great job doing that and lives peacefully like a civilian somewhere in the U.S. of A., but it's just like like she doesn't care if Ben Bradley wants her in the Ben Bradley Jr. wants her in the book about Ben Bradley Sr. You know she doesn't care about that opportunity of contributing. I mean I think she's she's done her best to make peace with it, and she's also you know done her best to work on herself so that you know life is different. All right, well Mike Sager, thanks for uh, talking about her with me. It is my pleasure. Mike Sager's ebook about the Janet Cook episode is called Janet's World, the inside story of Washington Post Pulitzer fabulist Janet Cook. It's a good read and a quick one. And you can find it and many other books that Sager has published, some of which he's written, at his company's website, thesagergroup.net. Not Your Century is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is the editor in chief. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like this show, we'd love it if you'd give it a rating and a review. For great journalism today, consider subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle, which you can do in both paper and digital form by going to sfchronicle.com slash subscribe. Historical research by Libby Coleman. I'm King Kaufman. Talk to me on Twitter at King underscore Kaufman. We now return you to your century.